Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. We start with an update to a story we told you about yesterday. Some of the unaccompanied minors who are arriving at the U.S.-Mexico border seeking asylum might start moving into a temporary shelter at the San Diego Convention Center as soon as this weekend. Nathan Fletcher is the chairman of the San Diego Board of Supervisors and spoke outside the convention center yesterday. The goal is not a long-term a housing situation for these kids. It's a safe, stable environment to transition them uh, to their family members. San Diego is offering its convention center as a temporary shelter for migrant children after a personal request was made by newly sworn in Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra. That's the sound of protesters in L.A.'s Echo Park neighborhood this morning. They're gathering to voice their opposition to the planned dismantlement of a growing homeless encampment around the city's Echo Park Reservoir. That's become a flashpoint in L.A.'s wider debate over homeless policy. The city says it will do everything possible to relocate homeless individuals who are moved from the area to temporary shelters and motels. Critics say authorities can't find a place for everyone, and some homeless people feel safer camping by the reservoir. As an effort to recall Governor Gavin Newsom looks increasingly likely to reach the ballot, Newsom supporters are saying the campaign is driven by fringe groups. And Jewish members of the state legislature are calling out what they see as anti-Semitic messaging in the effort. KQED Politics Editor Scott Schaefer reports. Members of the legislature's Jewish caucus say leaders of the campaign to recall Newsom have ties to groups like QAnon and the anti-government far-right organization The Three Percenters. On a virtual press conference Tuesday, San Francisco State Senator Scott Weiner accused recall organizers of hijacking the Holocaust by using images of Adolf Hitler to condemn Governor Newsom's orders around the pandemic. These are people who are extremists. Uh, These are people who are peddling conspiracy theories, and these are people who are no friends to the Jewish community. In fact, a few of the lead recall organizers have in the past posted social media images and comments that many see as racist or anti-Semitic. The recall campaign spokesman dismissed the allegations by the Jewish caucus as a hateful political stunt and said the campaign denounces all forms of hate and bigotry. For the California Report, I'm Scott Schaefer.
According to the most recent state numbers, nearly 17% of Californians have been fully vaccinated against COVID and 15% are partially vaccinated. As public health authorities try to convince those people who are vaccination reluctant to get a shot, powerful allies in that effort could be religious leaders who can use their authority to assure people about vaccine effectiveness and safety. One person who wants to play a big role in that effort is the Catholic Bishop of San Diego and Imperial Counties. Robert McElroy. His archdiocese has launched a campaign to promote COVID vaccinations among San Diego Catholics, saying it's the moral thing to do. The overall and nearly unanimous position among the bishops has been that the bottom line is Catholic teaching strongly, strongly encourages everyone in the Catholic community and beyond to get vaccinated, whether it be Pfizer or Moderna or Johnson and Johnson, because the imperative to heal our society is so strong. It is an act of charity to everyone we care about that we get vaccinated and to the to the society as a whole. Could you speak just more generally about what you think the church's role should be in promoting vaccinations and what's happening sure. on the ground, say in San Diego and Imperial counties, what is the Catholic Church doing to make sure that as many people as possible get vaccinated and also countering any vaccine skepticism that might be out there because of maybe language barriers in the immigrant community or people's ideology? What's happening there? Well, we have put out to our websites and communication vehicles in the strongest possible terms, exhortations to get vaccinated. And then we are going to have a more formalized and comprehensive effort to uh, speak to our parish communities. I have written a letter. It's going to be read at all of the masses in every parish in the diocese. And it's a moral good to do so. It serves God and it serves our neighbor to do so. We're also sending out materials to try to dispel some of the the false narratives that have circulated, uh, and particularly narratives which have circulated within cultural communities where it has been rumored that these vaccines have various defect or conspiratorial elements and all these things. So we're going to try to combat that directly. As we come out of this pandemic, of course, I think a lot of institutions are talking about how they did things before the pandemic and how they want to do things post-pandemic. Do you have any thoughts there as a religious leader? Are there things that you think just are going to have to change? Or are there things that have happened the last year that you would like to see continued? Yes, there are. And precisely we've begun a process here in our diocese to focus on the question, how should the church emerge post-pandemic? And part of that is going to be reclaiming elements that we've always had in the life of the church that are vital, but have been uh, diminished during this period of time. And part of it will be learning from new things that we have done because we were forced to do the online masses, of forms of communication, for example. Zoom will diminish in our life once this is over, but it still will have an ongoing role that will add things that we never had before and new ways of people relating to each other, which we want to continue and integrate into the ongoing life of the church. That is Robert McElroy, the Bishop of the Roman Catholic Diocese of San Diego and Imperial County. Thank you so much, Bishop. Great. It's been great to be with you, so. 
Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. In Fresno, a historic theater that's important to the city's arts community is at the center of a growing mini-culture war in the city. That's because an evangelical church is buying the property. With more, here's Valley Public Radio's Sarith Hawk. The theater is a 1930s art deco venue that typically hosts concerts, comedians, Paula Poundstone was the last to perform before the pandemic, and a gay pride film festival. But now, the Tower Theater will likely have a new owner, Adventure Church, by the end of March. A Fresno County judge last week denied an injunction to stop the sale. The church has been fighting to purchase the theater since December. Community members against the sale, like Lydia Fortner, say the church doesn't belong. The Tower Theater is like the heart of our performing arts community, both physically and symbolically. So for that to change, it would change the heart of what this community is. For months, the Save the Tower Theater Demonstration Committee has been organizing Sunday protests, recently drawing counter-protests from members of the Proud Boys. Committee organizer Haley White says she's ready for what could be a long battle. If that means we're, we're out here on Sunday mornings two years from now, we will be because Tower is special enough that it deserves that fight. Adding to the debate, a Fresno police officer was seen protesting with the Proud Boys. He's been placed on leave. For the California Report, I'm Sarith Hawk. What should a racial or ethnic group call itself? A new UC Berkeley survey has found that about 25% of U.S.-born Latinos in California now regularly use the term Latinx, and more than half of those polled are at least familiar with the word. Christina Mora is an associate professor of sociology and the co-director of Cal's Institute of Governmental Studies, which conducted the survey. She says young people use Latinx the most, but not exclusively. So it wasn't that Generation Z is using Latinx to replace Latino. In fact, they're often using Latino as well. 
And one way we sort of speculate is that they're probably using the term Latino when they're speaking to their family or about their family or in job setting and Latinx on social media or when they're talking to their peers. So they're becoming, if anything, more comfortable with the idea of just code switching. Morta says historically the Latino community has not embraced any one label. Think Hispanic, Chicano, Latino, Latinx, and the way it's used seems to fit in the same way. Cases of COVID in California nursing homes are down 98% since the winter surge. But after a year of outbreaks, life inside these facilities has changed, perhaps permanently. KQED's Molly Peterson reports. A year ago, Bethany Murray was on a call with nursing home managers on the East Coast. Their warning was stark. The virus will sneak into your building and will threaten your residents. Murray is now the administrator of Cedar Crest Nursing and Rehabilitation Center in Sunnyvale. And the bad outbreak there came early. So I can remember one time walking down the hallway and watching four or five nurses within the span of two to three minutes get a call from the county that they were positive. They had to leave. They had to walk out. Even before the pandemic, there was a lot of turnover in nursing home staff. And suddenly it was much harder to find people to do the work. State officials loosened work rules to try to help, and Murray offered hazard pay. One of our doctors was pushing beds as we did a room change. And I'm, you know, unclogging toilets and where we had a pipe break in the COVID unit and the plumbers wouldn't come. Then hospitals started discharging people more quickly, including those who needed post-operative care or rehab. These short-term residents take up about half the beds in Murray's nursing home. She says they require isolation and testing and usually more care and attention. It's a drain on resources that I don't think will go away until we as a larger community have kind of moved past COVID. Almost half a million nursing home residents in California have received one dose of vaccine. But many pandemic protocols, like isolating new residents and testing everyone frequently, haven't yet let up. And state rules now permit vaccinated residents to see visitors indoors. Even if we're 100% vaccinated, we're still going to have to follow these protocols. Well, one, until we're told not to, but also until we're reasonably confident that people coming in do not have COVID. And it's hard to say how long that's going to be. Nearly 13,000 Californians died from COVID in nursing homes, a smaller percentage of the state's total than the national average. Murray says she's optimistic Cedar Crest has learned enough for next time. I feel the desire to knock on wood. The hospitals are starting the process of vaccinating our residents before they even get to us. We've taken care of our staff. All of our long-term residents are vaccinated. We're starting to see that light. And Murray says if care homes are seeing the light, the rest of us can too. For the California Report, I'm Molly Peterson. And finally this morning, the California Report wants to extend our condolences to Erica Mahoney. She's the news director of our partner station KAZU in the Monterey Bay area. Erica's father, Kevin Mahoney, was one of the 10 people killed in the Boulder, Colorado supermarket shooting on Monday. Our sympathies to Erica and her family and everyone else touched by the tragedy in Boulder. Support for the California Report comes from Paint Care. Now with 800 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. Stanford Medicine, protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash AdaptingCare. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, 
whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, working to advance the frontiers of ocean research, sharing the connection between life on land and life at sea with everyone everywhere. And that's the California Report for Wednesday, March 24th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Thanks so much for listening and be well. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi there, I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.